You are listening to the audio podcast Ukraine War Decoded. My name is Viktor Kovalenko, and my guest today is Yaroslava Berbieri, a doctoral researcher from the University of Birmingham, England. Her research is focused on the territories of Ukraine occupied by Russia since 2014, in particular in eastern Donetsk and Luhansk provinces. I am glad that Yaroslava Barbieri agreed to talk to my podcast because she has a strong connection to Ukraine. She was raised in the family of prominent Ukrainian writers. Her grandma is Lina Kostenko, a Ukrainian patriotic poet and writer of modern times. To warm up, my first question to Yaroslava is about what Russia is trying to achieve in the occupied territories on the east of Ukraine since 2014 till now. First of all, I mean the self-proclaimed republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. Back then, I believe that Moscow was trying to exploit what it saw as a power vacuum left when uh, former President Viktor Yanukovych fled in the context of the Euromaidan protests, and that basically opened a window of opportunity to destabilize the country from within that led to the annexation of Crimea first, and then the intervention in eastern Ukraine and the creation of these um, self-proclaimed republics. Over the years, Russia has consistently promoted promoted this idea of a civil war to basically cover its actual role in creating, ensuring the survival of these entities and present itself as a mediator rather than a party to the conflict. And within this framework of the Minsk agreement, I believe that Russia created an unsustainable and paradoxical situation in the long term, because essentially what they were doing, they were attempting to reintegrate these occupied regions back into the Ukrainian state while imposing conditions of large autonomy that essentially would create a state within a state situation to be enshrined in Ukraine's constitution that would essentially then prevent the reversal of this destabilization from within over time. But at the same time that they were promoting this supposed legal reintegration of the regions back into Ukraine, they were de facto promoting integration processes between these regions and the Russian Federation. And these, you know, include passportization policies, the adoption of Russian educational standards, the promotion of indoctrination program, as they call them, a patriotic education program that aim at militarizing the youth. Another very important development is also the integration of the local security and military structures into Russia's security and military structures. So essentially, we were creating an appendix of, of the Russian state within Ukraine. But I believe that at some point, you know, even Putin thought that there would be a window of opportunity with Zelensky, thinking that he would be more malleable than Poroshenko. But that was not the case in the end. And so Putin realized that his approach between 2014 and 21 would not help him achieve his ultimate objective of turning Ukraine into a vassal subject. So full-scale invasion being the only option. But as we know now, um, this resulted in a strategic blunder because it was just based on inaccurate intelligence data, a profound misunderstanding of Ukrainian society, and also the developments and improvements of the Ukrainian army over the past eight years. But the important thing to mention is that The activities that Russian authorities promoted on the ground in the DNR LNR in 2014-21 
effectively prepared the ground for the full-scale invasion. And now we see that they are being replicated in the newly occupied territories. And the last thing I'll say is that currently probably one of the most important discussions is around the future status of these newly occupied territories. So we've heard the possibility of organising so-called referenda and there have been mentions of potentially creating, you know, the Kherson People's Republic or reintegrating all of these regions, conflating them into one new federal district. And there is word that essentially these referendum could take place to coincide with the elections in, in Russia in September. And the appointment of Sergei Kirienko is clearly suggesting that they're looking into annexing, fully annexing these territories. Yaroslava, please help me to understand. In the newly occupied territories of Kherson and Zaporizhia, we see that Russia is implementing the different scenario that in the eastern provinces. Instead of creation of the next so-called republics, Russia is aiming at the full annexation of that occupied lands like it did with Crimea. Am I right? Well, we can assume that uh, the creation of, say, a Kherson People's Republic could be a stepping stone for full annexation. But it's just that there are un- a lot of unknown factors currently because we know that the local population is not really showing allegiance or readiness to submit to Russia's control. And we see, you know, an emergent uh, partisan movement in in Kherson. So it's really unclear how Russian authorities will be able to maintain control over these territories without imposing effectively a regime of terror. It's just that we see a lot of steps on the ground that point into the direction that perhaps simply creating people's republics is no longer sufficient. And we also saw an interesting step, and that is to change the names of some streets in Russia, taking the name of some warlords that are considered heroes in the occupied areas of Donbass. And supposedly there was a step to prepare the Russian population for full integration of these regions um, into Russia. So a lot will be determined by the military situation on the ground. But definitely we cannot exclude the possibility that they're preparing for full annexation. The next question I'd like to ask you about the Soviet Union passports that the Russian army brought into Ukraine during this year invasion to issue them to Ukrainians, especially in the Kyiv province. The Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore, there is no such a state at all, but this is an interesting moment of this war and, on my mind, may point on the true intentions of the Kremlin to restore the communist USSR. What do you think about it? Well, I think that... There's perhaps a more superficial immediate level than a deeper one. So at a more superficial level, I think that this use of Soviet symbolism um, is just to reignite Soviet nostalgia among parts of the local population in an attempt to find a pool of possible collaborationists that would be willing to contribute to the establishment of the the fact-occupying administration. But as I mentioned before, we see that the Russian authorities are really, really find it quite challenging with the kind of local de facto administration that is walking around with personal guards because of fear of retaliation from the local population that is, is simply uh, not willing to become a subject of the Russian Federation. And so 
there is quite a straightforward attempt to reignite that Slavic nostalgia among portions of the population. But also, we see that this is a very consistent continuation of what they've been doing in the DNR LNR. And so that is just um, a rhetorical device to reinforce this parallel between the Great Patriotic War, which is how Russia calls World War II, and the what they call the Russian Spring, which is essentially the creation of the DNR LNR back in 2014, and now the special operation. So it's to create this historical continuum of the Russian soldier that is constantly in an endless fight with mythical fascists, which is essentially just an empty signifier for whoever disagrees with um, Russia's revanchist objectives. But there's a deeper level, I believe, where Soviet symbolism becomes a smoke mirror for the absence of a coherent vision of what post-Soviet Russia should look like. So essentially, Putin is selling the illusion of a return to Russia's grandeur from the past because he cannot sell any viable promise of a future for the country. And this is obsession with the past. We saw recently him comparing himself to Peter the Great. It's just symptomatic of this lack of a future vision, one in which the authorities, the government tries to create decent living standards and life opportunities for its population and also the population in the newly occupied territories, rather than being just a kleptocratic police state that is currently driven by a cult of personality, in my opinion. Ultimately, I do not think that Putin's goal is simply the restoration of the USSR, literally. I think he's definitely trying to project the image of Russia as a great power whose opinion everyone has to deal with. But this, you know, realpolitik that we saw in previous years has now gone full on revenges. And sometimes it results in quite bizarre statements, a very interesting symptom of the fact that it wouldn't be so easy to create Soviet Union 2.0 is at the recent St. Petersburg Economic Summit when the president of Kazakhstan basically explicitly challenged Putin's statement suggesting that Kazakhstan would not be condoning this new vision in which state borders can be changed at a whim of a dictator. You mentioned that Russia lacks military capabilities to control the vast occupied lands, so that could be the major explanation of the horrific war crimes against civilians committed by the Russian soldiers in Bucha, Gostomel and other Ukrainian cities. Do you agree that the Russians use brutal force, torture and death punishment to intimidate and break free people who don't subdue to them? Russian authorities, Russian forces are definitely imposing a regime of terror that is symptomatic of their inability to secure control through, you know, just simply soft power. We've seen several reports of interrogations and tortures being used to identify Ukrainian servicemen or people who may have relatives in the Ukrainian military. We've seen these extremely disturbing reports from the so-called filtration camps, and there are several ones, and that's a continuation of the practices that we already saw in the DNA LNR, for example, with the case of the Izolatia prison. These filtration camps, I think, are one of the most horrifying developments since Russia's uh, full-scale invasion, and they really, really highlight these parallels between Putin's Russia and honestly Soviet repressions and Nazi Germany. We see reports of mass deportations of civilians. We see then the relocation 
of Russian citizens into the newly occupied territories, which really, really echoes the social engineering practices from Soviet times. We see the facilitation of policy that would enable Russian families to adopt Ukrainian children that are taken away from the families of Ukrainian civilians being deported. So effectively, exactly as you said, I believe that they're setting up a regime of terror, uh, which bears extraordinary resemblance to Soviet and Nazi crimes, because it's just their only way to rule. I have a very personal question about your family and friends currently in Ukraine. Despite the war and the threat of occupation, and despite the options to be evacuated to the safe place, your grandmother and mother decided to stay in Ukraine. You know, the the first weeks were an absolute horror. It was a 24-7, non-stop mode of working and worrying and refreshing the news every five minutes. Early on, we every each of us had these evacuation plans in place, but um, my grandma decided not to leave and my mom decided not to leave her behind. And I was always struck by the sense of kind of dignity and fearlessness that I heard from them is just this desire not to flee and how many more times can we flee and you know my grandma is 95 so she also remembers uh, the bombing of Kiev of 1941 so it's almost you know how someone's life starts under the bombs and then ends under the bombs it's, it's quite a tragic um feeling and it's you live with this sense, sense of acceptance that you might not see them again but we have family friends that had houses in Bucha and Irpin and they came back to these houses to see you know no doors no windows everything stolen from um their houses uh it's an indescribable feeling and then I remember seeing uh photos Photos of uh, local residents that were covering the holes left by Russian bullets on, say, their little fences with images of flowers to try and, uh, you know, impose on this layer of psychological horror um, a little aesthetic that would give a resemblance of a return to normality. And I just think that, you know, when you have family and friends there, many have now left, but um, quite a lot have returned and you live just with this sense of angst And every morning you sort of wake up and refresh the news and you hope that, you know, there's not a missile that hit their house. And when you read that there's a missile that hits the area where you know that your mom and your grandma are, it's just indescribable, really. But it's it's a feeling that I, like thousands, millions of other Ukrainians, live every day. Yaroslava, you mentioned the desire to return to normality. With time, this Russian war against Ukraine will end sooner or later. I would like to know your opinion about the possible resolution of this war. Well, I think that in order to answer this question, we need to separate a reflection on the future of the Ukrainian state on the one hand and the future of the Russian state on the other hand as a result of this war. So it's worth noting that the Ukrainian leadership's rhetoric and objectives have changed over time. The early round of negotiation in Istanbul Back then, we heard from Zelensky's administration the readiness to settle for neutral status of the country in exchange for immediate ceasefire and a return to the pre-February 2022 status quo, uh, which would leave the issue of Donbass unsolved, by the way. Another point that was put on the table was the settlement of the Crimean question over a 10-year period. But I believe that 
as a result of the horrifying reports Russian servicemen were doing, the war crimes that they were doing in Bucha, Irpin, Mariupol, Kremenchuk, all of these war crimes cumulatively changed public opinion, changed the readiness of the government, and then emboldened by the West military assistance, Ukraine has just shifted the rhetoric. And now the objective is to restore control over all of Ukraine's internationally recognized territory. That is a return to the pre-2014 territorial status quo. So I believe that this is a point of no return. And I find the expression that a bad peace is better than a good war profoundly misleading because it's precisely bad peace deals that enable future wars. And the argument that Ukraine must agree to territorial compromises to achieve peace will only signal to the Russian leadership that the red lines of what's admissible in international law can be blurred over and over again until they become meaningless. And so we'd be playing Russian roulette with the rules that govern interstate relations. And so if we start gambling with the principle that all states are sovereign, but some are more sovereign than others, and who's next? Is it Lithuania? Is it Taiwan? Is it Kurila Islands? It's just, I believe that when I hear these um, arguments that Ukraine must be ready for territorial compromises, I believe that this comes from people that really are unaware of also the type of territorial compromises that we're talking about. I remember seeing online this um, juxtaposition of different maps of, say, uh, the currently occupied territories in Ukraine and what this would have meant if Italy had been attacked. I'm half Italian, for example. And so the territories currently being occupied in Ukraine would correspond to all of northern and central Italy. So, you know, the basically the rebuttal is the people in other countries that would like Ukraine to compromise in these terms. Would the, how, how much territories would they be ready to give up? And it's not just about territory. We're talking about people here. I just believe that this is a point of no return. And this is not just about a war between Russia and Ukraine, what is happening currently in Ukraine will have huge repercussions for the architecture of international security for the years to come. And then, as I mentioned before, another important reflection that we must have is about the future of the Russian state and Russian society. So we see that there's a situation of informational isolation and indoctrination in Russian society that is astonishing. But we also see great polarization between people that have been indoctrinated by Russian state media who truly believe the Kremlin's rhetoric about the nature of this war. But we also see Russians who, you know, have been exposed to independent media and perfectly understand what is happening. They understand the cost that this war will have for that country. And we also saw that this war exposed the massive structural inequalities within Russia between, you know, the center, Moscow, St. Petersburg, big cities on the one hand, and the periphery. And so we saw multiple reports of how the highest proportion of deaths in the Russian armed forces comes from ethnic minorities, Buryate, Chechens, uh, that essentially use as a cannon fodder, and they join the army purely as a social lift and die in a war waged under the banner of the Russian world ideology, of which they cannot really be part. And it's just baffling. And remember, we saw these reports of how uh, Russian soldiers were stealing everything from um, Ukrainian civilians' houses because they never knew that people could live with such decent living standards. And, you know, we've heard over and over again the opinion that 
we must be careful of not humiliating Russia, which often basically is a statement that is used referring to, you know, what happened, the humiliation that Germany experienced after World War One, and how this humiliation was supposedly uh, exploited by Hitler to start World War Two. I believe that this is a misleading historical parallel. I believe that the historical parallel that we need to look at is the one Germany's defeat after World War II and how that sense of humiliation was actually accompanied by a sense of guilt and shame and state-led institutionalization of collective responsibility and collective memory. And that is what enabled the democratization of Germany that is now a very successful and democratic country. So this is basically how we should interpret the idea of victory of Ukraine and defeat of Russia in this war. But at the same time, this will not be easy, of course, because it will take years and years to enable this shift, this cognitive cultural shift in Russian society, where for years uh, they've been fed a very distorted narrative about the role of Russia in modern and contemporary history. You know, this will definitely not be an easy process, but I believe that currently in Ukraine, really, we are seeing the beginning of a new era in contemporary history and international relations. At this moment, I will end this episode with Yaroslava Barbieri. She is a doctoral researcher from the University of Birmingham, England. This was a podcast, The Ukraine War Decoded, with me, Viktor Kovalenko, a former Ukrainian journalist and veteran. Please support this podcast by donating to my PayPal and follow me on Twitter at Mr. Kovalenko. Goodbye and so long.